Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Adam Marconin, and today we're discussing the recent rise in ransomware attacks. Many of these attacks have come from a Russia-based hacking group known as Revil, short for Ransomware Evil, which mysteriously went offline just a few days ago after executing a string of some of the biggest ransomware attacks in history. So in today's episode, we're going to look at how Revil and other ransomware groups operate, why ransomware attacks appear to be occurring more and more frequently now, and what we can do as cyber defenders to protect ourselves in the future. Let's start with the story of Revil. Before going offline on July 13, 2021, Revil had an incredible run of ransomware attacks. So I'm going to go through the biggest attacks that they have executed over the past six months from most recent to least recent. And you've probably heard about a few of them already in the news. So on July 7th, 2021, Revil hacked a U.S. military defense contractor, HX5, whose clients include the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and NASA. And Revil posted some of their exfiltrated data on their happy blog to show that they had, in fact, exfiltrated this sensitive data. Now, it's impossible to know the full extent of what data they captured. It's kind of like in a hostage situation when the criminal sends you a pinky finger. You know they probably have your loved one, but you don't know the current status of your loved one. You don't know if they're doing other things beyond that. So it is still an ongoing developing situation. Just five days before the HX5 hack, Revil also hacked into Kaseya desktop management software, and they used that software to distribute ransomware to hundreds of managed service providers. Revil demanded $70 million to restore all this encrypted data, which makes it the single biggest ransomware attack in history as far as the amount of dollars demanded. Also in June 2021, Revil hacked an American energy company known as Invenergy, stealing four terabytes of data, as well as, quote, spicy information on Invenergy's CEO, Michael Polsky. And the fallout from this hack is also still unfolding, but you can kind of see the different strategies, both getting sensitive data and also getting sensitive information on the people in charge as a form of blackmail to get them to pay the ransom. In May of 2021, Revil hacked one of the largest meat distributors in the U.S., JBS. And JBS did pay Revil $11 million in Bitcoin as ransom to restore their encrypted data. Also in May, the Colonial Pipeline was hacked. I'm sure you've probably heard about that. And this was hacked by DarkSide, which many believe to be an offshoot of Revil because they have very similar code bases. DarkSide was able to successfully shut down the largest fuel pipeline in the United States, creating gas shortages all across the East Coast, leading to rising prices in gas, and leading to just general uncertainty and low level of panic that has since subsided. In April of 2021, Revil stole information about Apple's upcoming product releases, requesting $50 million from Apple in order not to publish that data publicly. And in March 2021, Revil hacked into Microsoft's Exchange server, requesting $50 million ransom or else they would delete and or leak all of that data. So you can see these are some really high profile attacks and it really points to the vulnerabilities in many current security systems and their inability to prevent ransomware attacks. So the next question I want to address is, how do ransomware groups actually operate? What happens from the ransomware attacker side of the equation? 
There's a really great infographic that shows how these ransomware groups operate, and I'll share this here on the video pod, but I'll also describe it for audio listeners. So the first thing to know is that there are people around the globe who make a career of hacking, and they might be white hat hackers, which means they are doing it for good. So they might be hacking systems to find bugs, to find vulnerabilities so they can fix them. Oftentimes there are actual bug bounties so you can win money by finding vulnerabilities so the system becomes more secure and more robust. But there's also black hat hackers who usually just wanna make as much money as they can without being overly exposed themselves. And many of these black hat hackers live in countries that don't necessarily treat hacking as a serious crime, so long as they don't hack the actual safe haven country wherein they live. So Gandcrab, Revol, and Darkside all appear to be based in Russia, and as long as they never attack Russia or any people who live in Russia, and as long as they're willing to do the occasional favor for Russia, maybe they are asked to hack this group or that group as a favor, then they're pretty much left alone by the authorities and they don't have to worry about the government coming and prosecuting them. The business model for ransomware is really interesting and it's very similar to software as a service. Now they have ransomware as a service. So you can imagine there's these ransomware developers, people who actually write the code for the ransomware software, and then they lease out their code to affiliates, the people who want to hack this group or that group. And it's very similar to how you would lease out your software to a company with enterprise software solutions. So the way this ransomware as a service business model works is you have these ransomware developers, they write the code for the ransomware, the affiliates use that code to elicit ransom in the form of payment from victims, and then the ransomware developers will take a cut and they'll give the rest to the affiliates. And this allows the ransomware developers to have less exposure. Oftentimes they will request payment upfront. So even if the ransom doesn't get paid, they still get paid. And it's easy for the affiliates because they already have people who are well known in the space to write good ransomware code. And so they don't have to write it themselves. They can just work with these ransomware houses that can essentially do it all for them for a fee. And the worrying thing for cybersecurity experts is that this appears to becoming more and more commonplace. And once you have some ransomware houses that are really effective at doing what they do, and they're willing to essentially lend out their ransomware to the highest bidder, that can create serious problems on a variety of fronts. Let's talk about why ransomware attacks are on the rise right now. The most obvious answer is that technology is more widespread now. There wasn't really any ransomware attacks until at least the 1980s, and obviously in the 1990s and early 2000s, as personal computing became much more widespread, so did ransomware attacks. And this has turned into a sort of Red Queen-style arms race, where cyber attackers and cyber defenders are always competing against one another. But the worrying part is that it seems like now perhaps the scale is getting tipped to the side of cyber attackers away from cyber defenders. But we'll have to see how that develops over time because with every action there is a reaction and this is an ongoing developing situation. The second reason ransomware attacks are on the rise is that the political climate is heating up. There are now more incentives for state-sponsored ransomware attackers and cyber attackers to go after their competitor countries. So for instance, there's competition between US and China, between the US and Russia, 
and various countries will have cyber attackers and cyber defenders working for them, whether directly or indirectly. And also, because governments are often unwilling to bomb their opponent or to take military action in a way that might spark a serious reaction, cyber attacks seem to be one area where they're willing to push the envelope. As long as you're not cutting off core infrastructure that leads to dozens of people dying, normally there is not much of a response when a country gets cyber attacked. Because what can you really do? In many of these cases, Russia, for instance, has plausible deniability. These are not groups that work directly for Russia. It's more that Russia is turning a blind eye and maybe occasionally they ask for a favor, but it's hard to actually pin down Russia and say, hey, you are harboring hackers, you need to stop or else. Similarly, the U.S. is probably carrying out very similar types of cyber attacks and cyber defenses. And so we are coming into this state-sponsored level arms race, which is heating up the environment for all parties involved. Another reason for the rise in ransomware is the rise of hard-to-trace currencies. Many people will point out that Bitcoin is one of the currencies of choice for ransom payments. But actually, there is another cryptocurrency that is even better suited to ransomware, and that is Monero. Monero is a cryptocurrency that is all about untraceability. It's all about not having a record of all the transactions on the blockchain. So whereas Bitcoin is anonymous from the sense that it doesn't actually say who you are that owns the Bitcoin, it still is able to be tracked because there is a wallet address and all the previous transactions are recorded in the blockchain. And if you use any kind of centralized system like Coinbase or Kraken, you're going to have a record of your actual identity associated with your Bitcoin wallet. But with something like Monero, it's much harder to track. And so I think that's going to be an interesting space to watch is how these anonymous currencies become more and more prominent. And the final reason I'll mention is that ransomware attackers appear to be getting more and more bold as they have more success with ransomware attacks. And this may create FOMO for other ransomware attackers because if you already created successful ransom software, then you can just use that time and time again. It becomes easy money if you've already created it. And if there aren't major repercussions by other countries or companies or your own country, then there really isn't much of a downside to these ransomware attackers. Now let's talk about how hackers are actually able to infiltrate supposedly secure systems. And for that, let's look at the five main types of cyber attacks. The first is phishing, spelled P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G. This is sending an email purporting to be someone other than who you actually are to get them to reset their password, give you their login information, give you their credit card, or some other valuable information. So one of the most common types of attacks is you send an email to someone who works at your target organization. You say, hey, I lost my login. Can you create a new password for me? Or I saw one instance where multiple times the hackers said, hey, I was at a party. I lost my phone. Can you please send me the login information so I can get it into the system? And this worked multiple times. So anytime you have humans involved making decisions, you have vulnerabilities that you can exploit. 
Also, this sometimes happens through phone calls. So I had a, a friend who kept getting phone calls from someone purporting to be the IRS. And they said, unless you pay the taxes that are owed right now over the phone with your credit card, you're going to go to jail for tax evasion. And this created all of this fear in this person. And fortunately, the roommate was wise enough to realize how fishy this sounds. And so they didn't end up actually giving over their credit card information, but whether it's through phone calls or emails or any other types of communication, you need to be really careful about giving anyone your sensitive login information. The second most common type of attack is what's known as the man in the middle attacks, MITM attacks. And this is essentially eavesdropping, oftentimes on a public network, so you can see what password or email login someone is typing in and then you have their information without actually interacting with them directly. So usually this will happen over public Wi-Fi networks. So if you're at an airport or someplace like that, or maybe even the lobby of the company that's being targeted, you could have some software that sees all the activities going on in that public network. And so this is why it's always a good idea to not use public Wi-Fi. And if you have to use public Wi-Fi, do not log in to anything actively while you're on public Wi-Fi because you don't know who else is watching when you're in a public network. The third main type of attack is called denial of service attacks, DDoS attacks. And this is essentially when you flood a system with traffic so the network grinds to a halt and it becomes inoperable or at least much slower. Oftentimes this involves using bot networks. So you might not even own all these computers, but you might hack into many different computers in the area and then have them all send requests to the same system. So the system essentially has to shut down because there's too many requests to process all at once. There are also what's called zero day exploits. This is when a network vulnerability is known and it may actually have been announced, but it hasn't yet been fixed. And so there's essentially a ticking clock for how long can we use this exploit before they fix the bug? And so oftentimes this will happen with, let's say Apple devices where, oh, there's a new vulnerability for iPhones or for Macs or maybe for Windows PCs. And then hackers go into overdrive to try to exploit this before that vulnerability is patched. And the final type of attacks are what I would call niche attacks. They are specific to the quirks of the system involved. So one example is DNS tunneling. This involves using the DNS records for the domain to redirect traffic or to really hit at the foundations of the site. There's also SQL injection, which involves injecting malicious code into a system to get information that it otherwise wouldn't be willing to give you. So it might be as simple as typing in malicious code into a search box, and that might allow you to get information that you shouldn't be able to obtain. There are many other types of niche attacks as well, but certainly the ones that I would be the most concerned about from a, a personal perspective is phishing attacks and man-in-the-middle attacks. Now let's talk about how to defend against ransomware attacks. The single best piece of advice, in my opinion, is to use a password manager that has end-to-end -end encryption. I like LastPass, there's also 1Password, there are many password managers, but the beauty of these systems is that you only have to remember 1Password, your master password, and then that unlocks all your other passwords, and therefore you can have 
really strong auto-generated passwords with all these random numbers and letters for all your other sites and you only have to remember one password. So this is much more secure than having the same password or the same two or three passwords that you use for everything or having some really easily memorable password for each site that like ABC123, right? Like that's that's something that people always use and yet hackers, it's one of the first things they try when they run through all the various options of login combinations. I also have a personal rule that I will never do any business over the phone. I will never tell someone my credit card information over the phone. I also won't do anything over mail, actual physical mail. And I will not usually click on any links in an email. If I get an email from Wells Fargo telling me I have to pay some bill, I will log into my Wells Fargo account and pay it online in that portal. I will not do anything via email because the biggest mistake people always make with ransomware is they click a link. They get some email, they're not sure, and curiosity gets the best of them. And unknowingly, they download some file and boom, the system has ransomware now infecting it. The second piece of advice is to use two-factor authentication, meaning you actually have to enter a code that's texted to you or used in Google Authenticator or one of these other apps. And this will solve 99% of ransomware attempts because it means that ransomware attackers would have to not only get access to your computer, but also to your phone so they can use the two-factor authentication. So even though that seems like a really simple thing to do, it has a huge benefit for your protection and your security. The third piece of advice I would give is store important information in some backup drive. In a lot of these ransomware attacks, essentially they steal the most important information for a company and they encrypt it. And in order to get the encryption key, you have to pay the ransom. Well, if you're already backing up your most important data on some other private server or some offline hard drive that the hackers can't get to, then you don't need to pay the ransom. You can just restore the data, put it on a more secure system, and you're fine. So it's always a good idea to have a backup of your most important data. And finally, I would say that using more robust tools is the best approach. So decentralized tools tend to be really robust because since they're open source, they have people working on it from all different angles. When you have really old legacy systems that haven't been updated for a while and they're centralized, oftentimes they tend to be government systems that haven't been updated for decades. These are the ones that become very insecure. So use decentralized systems when you can or just use very secure centralized systems. All right, now let's talk about what's going to happen in the future with regard to ransomware attacks. Let's get into the future scenarios to explore. Let's start with the worst case scenario. Worst case scenario. The worst case scenario would be a cyber World War III type of scenario where if you can imagine the power that hackers in the US, China, Russia, all these other countries have, if there were no limitations on what they're willing to do, they could hack core infrastructure. If there's power outages for multiple days, that could cause many deaths in hospitals. And just think about what society would be like with a long period of no power, no Amazon deliveries, no internet. The whole society would 
be in a crisis mode if that were to happen. It could seriously become like a Mad Max type of scenario, even if there were just no internet for a week or two weeks. It's kind of scary to think about how quickly society would devolve in that type of situation, especially in the big cities with so many people concentrated in one area and with not that much farmland for food or water sources nearby, the urban centers could become some of the worst places to be in the scenario where there is a massive cyber attack. Another worst case scenario would be a more fundamental cyber attack. So for instance, many state-run systems in the US are based on COBOL, C-O-B-O-L, which is a 60-year-old programming language that hardly any programmers know anymore. And there was actually a great desire to find COBOL programmers during the 2020 pandemic because a lot of these systems got overrun and in order to update them and modernize them, they needed COBOL developers to update the systems. But Many COBOL developers were in their 60s or 70s or 80s themselves because it's such an old language, no one learns that anymore. So if there were to be an attack on one of the fundamental programming languages, it could have far-reaching effects across many systems in the U.S. and around the world. Now let's talk about the best-case scenario. Best-case scenario. The best-case scenario is that Given that Revo has disappeared from the web, perhaps the worst of ransomware attacks are now behind us. This is not a likely scenario, but that would be the best case. I think a more realistic best case is that while ransomware attacks will continue to rise and while Revo will still likely be around in some other form under some different name, companies will continue to build better privacy and security tools. We've already seen Apple recently announced they are launching their own native VPN and encryption for iPhone and Mac devices. So you don't have to download some separate VPN or Tor browser. You can have that all right there embedded on your phone. Similarly, they also have features now that show this email is likely spam or this caller is likely spam. So as these native security solutions become more and more widespread, we will see the internet become less of a wild west and more of a regulated system where it will actually be more difficult to do something dumb and give over sensitive information because the system will be there to help you and to protect the regular person. Now let's get into the most likely scenario. Most likely scenario. The most likely scenario is that ransomware and cyber attacks will continue to rise. And we will also see that quicken the pace of developing more robust security systems. In other words, the red queen dynamics of the cyber attacker, cyber defender arms race will continue. I think this will also push people to adopt more decentralized systems as opposed to centralized systems. And for instance, think about how much more difficult it would be to attack Wikipedia as opposed to say the Encyclopedia Britannica website. For Encyclopedia Britannica, all you need to do is hack into the email of one person who works at Encyclopedia Britannica, whether through phishing or man in the middle or one of the other attacks we mentioned. And then you could essentially take down the whole site. Whereas with Wikipedia, because it is decentralized, there are so many different editors who have access to Wikipedia, who can fix things when they break, that there is almost no way 
that you could take out all the various Wikipedia editors. And you can see this already where anytime someone edits a page of some celebrity to say something ridiculous, within a few minutes, it's gone and that edit has been fixed and there are systems and tools in place to react to any sort of threat that the system may have. So I think over time, the internet will move from more centralized tools and websites and servers to more decentralized tools and websites and systems. Lastly, it does seem to me like there will be more high profile ransomware attacks to come. It feels like in the US, we have been sleeping on this issue for a long time and it is time to wake up. I think once we see a even more serious attack than what we've had in the past, we will seriously revamp our security systems and take a closer look at decentralized solutions. Finally, for the most likely scenario for your own life, for my own life, it depends on our actions, what we do to protect ourselves. So use a password manager, don't click on any suspicious emails, and take all the necessary precautions to protect yourself against cyber attacks in the future. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for tuning in, and I'll see you next time. The past, the present, and the future.